a lot of people get high off the I like to call it the high off the about like like I'm about <laughs> to, to to kick off out to do this like they're, they're so infatuated with it and it's like the best way I could like describe it the best analogy is like you ever see like track runners where they get on those blocks and they're like about to take off people live for just that they don't give a damn about running the race they don't give a damn about winning the race they just want to be on those blocks because it makes them feel like they're about to do something. I guess my biggest flex is just dropping all my money on real estate. You know what I mean? $40,000 renovations, $50,000 renovations and being able to employ, like I got contractors that work under me now. So, I mean, that's a flex in its own being that able to have contractors. Sure. They all know to be my dad. Double up. Three or four times. I ain't telling no lies. Let's run it up. I think what everyone wants to know now is what are you going to do with all this money? Uh, I'm going to reinvest my money into the community. You are now tuned into the Double Up Podcast. Oh, the Double Up Podcast is Gene, also known as the real estate guy, Mr. Marshall. What's happening? Yeah, what's good, fam? It's D Rob, aka the infamous CPA. It's episode 27, 27 of the Double Up Podcast. Thank you for rocking with us, man. And before we get into the show, man, if y'all y'all feeling the show, y'all have any feedback for us, please leave a review and rating, preferably a five-star review. Uh, but yeah, definitely let us know if you have any topics you want us to touch on, slide in our DM on Instagram, Twitter, whatever. Uh, we definitely want to make sure that we're addressing the topics that y'all want to hear about. So tap in with us. Oh, bro, what's good? How you double up the past week? What's been going on? Man, how did, how did I double up the past week? So, uh, really, so I had to take a look back and really, really go set um, what I wanted to accomplish in 2021. And for me, 2021 is a year where I really want to emphasize on creating the right relationship. And oftentimes, when, we, when we're looking to create new relationships, we're always trying to figure out what can we extract from the other person. When in reality, it should be, you know, what value can we add to other individuals' life? And I took a set, I took a, I took a step back, and I was really thinking about how what we focus on gets bigger. And so, oftentimes, we end up watering weeds in our life, and we don't understand that we're watering weeds. And sometimes those weeds can be behaviors. Sometimes those weeds can be people. And sometimes when we water those things that do not provide us with the fruit that we need or the results that we're looking for, then we land up in this repetitive cycle of not essentially living our best life and not really living a life of abundance. And so for me, man, I just really just took the time back, not anything monetarily, um, but really sat back and uh, truly did a self-assessment to figure out what is that one thing um, that Gene really does want to kind of emphasize on outside of a monetary perspective for 2021. And that was just really creating a cohesive unit of like-minded individuals to, to tap into, to really foster um, personal development, um, foster new, new investment ideas. Um, so yeah, man, so that's how I doubled up for the past week. Uh, not monetary, but really just looking back and assessing, you know, myself and what I wanted to accomplish for 2021. How about yourself? Man, that's dope, man. I think it's, it's essential that everyone kind of figure out not just what they want to do for 21, for 2021, but the people ultimately that they want to surround themselves with, because you'll be surprised just how much you can gain from just constantly being in touch with different kinds of people. They can really help expand your mindset, expand your money, et cetera, et cetera. 
or they can do the complete opposite. So definitely, definitely, if you're listening, make sure y'all be careful out there. Be strategic with who you're hanging out with, man, and who you invest in your time and energy in because, man, you you, don't, you ain't going to have too much energy. Like today is the most energy you probably will ever have, um, and it's going to get lower by the day. So for real, tap in. That's, that's super important. But for me, man, I've really been focused on kind of downsizing. So um, when I just started my entrepreneur journey a couple of years ago, I was kind of all over the place because I always had this thing, this arrogant thing where I thought like I, I can be good at everything. Um, and I was decent at a lot of things, but I was kind of like a master at none. And now I'm kind of figuring out what I want to hone my talents on. Um, and ultimately, it's definitely going to be real estate. So I'm basically trying to automate these other businesses right now from the calling for business, the digital courses, credit repair, all of that. So that I can really, really focus on real estate super, super heavy. Um, so yeah, 2021 is going to be the real estate year for me. And that's going to set the foundation for, man, the rest of my life, really. So um, that's really what I've been focused on. And I think I'm going to read that book by Gary Keller. I think it's called The One Thing. I think that's that's exactly what I'm trying to do right now. I've heard of that book. What is What is the one thing about? I haven't read it, but from what I've heard from other people, it's basically just it's basically going into why you should focus on one thing instead of trying to juggle multiple things. Um, but that's that's next on my next on my reading list for sure. Because yeah, it, it's time to just tap into one thing. But just from seeing individuals on like social media that become very successful, they focused on one thing that became very successful, and then that helped catapult them into much bigger things like i know individuals started a wholesaling did maybe half a mil in wholesale um and then now you started investing in business investing in the stock market etc cetera, etc cetera. or somebody you know focused mainly on selling courses they did very 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 well with that and now they're able to park their money in all these different arenas um so i see it's, it's a ton of benefits to just going all in on one thing until it's super successful and then just moving on to the next thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So we're going to move into the double up millionaire of the week. Um, so today we're going to focus on or highlight Chris Gardner. Um, Chris Gardner is one of the most successful African-American stockbrokers in history. Um, he's still with us today. Um, and he's professionally known as a multi multi-millionaire uh, from the work that he put in in san francisco so to kind of give you guys uh, a tad bit of background on chris chris was born in 1954 in the midwest um, milwaukee wisconsin to be exact at the age of 27 chris was left with his toddler son after the woman he was seeing at the time completely you know left him alone completely abandoned at this time you know chris wasn't financially stable and him and his son became homeless in san francisco with the lack of financial resources chris and his son would instead sleep wherever they could from you know bathroom that are at a railway station to the parks and you know even sometimes at the church health so not having stability was definitely not present in their life um he later landed an internship with dean woodard reynolds that he hoped would turn into a full-time job so he worked day in day out incredibly hard to become one of the best in the firm um he would call more people than anybody else to earlier than everybody else and be the last one leaving the office every night so through this adversity though he was able to close you know a plenty of multi-million dollar deals at this brokerage. And so I've always learned that he or she that always keeps a positive mindset throughout every adversity will always win. And that's 
exactly what Chris Gardner did. Um, he later founded his own brokerage firm, Gardner Rich and Company, in 1987. In 2006, Gardner sold his minority stake in the firm and published a memoir. That book was made into the motion picture of what we all know today, The Pursuit of Happiness, starring Will Smith. So I wanted to take the opportunity to highlight Chris Gardner because he is an example of, you know, again, he or she that goes through, that is going through any type of adversity. If you keep a positive mindset, you will always win. And, you know, sometimes, you know, we're all dealing with our own personal things. We might not be homeless. However, you know, whatever it is that you're going through, if you keep a positive mindset, you will come out on top. So I just wanted to highlight Chris Gardner for a split second, man. Um, a lot of, a lot of energy, a lot, a lot of inspiration for real. What's crazy is when I watched that movie, now that I'm trying to think back on it, I don't remember knowing that he became a stockbroker. I actually don't know what he was. I actually never really knew what he was doing <laughs> when he was interning. Yeah. I had no idea. Uh, maybe I'm going to have to go watch back, watch that and see if I pick up on it. But yeah, I know that was a great film. That's definitely a, a tearjerker for sure. That movie, man, that was that was really, really a great movie. But that's dope, man. It was. I love, I, love, I love seeing underdogs win. Like, I love a good underdog story. Man. But I think something, right. else, something else that I took away from this is like, he got rich doing business. Like, he created his own firm. It's basically like he created a business, grew it, and then kind of sold it or sold his state. Um, that's crazy. Yeah. I wonder what he does now. I know he's probably making a ton of royalties off the pursuit of happiness. And so that became a book as well, or no? Yeah. Or was it just a so book? right now? So no, it, it, he, he he published them more, and then it came out to the movie. Um, there's also a book as well. Right now, what he currently does is just travel and do motivation speaking. That's that's his passion. It's just literally just kind of like you know traveling, sharing his story, trying to motivate people who kind of came from the same trenches as him. And um, you know, very very successful cat man, still killing it, still killing it. That's what's up. Yeah, I see. I'm on his I'm on his website now. Yep. One of the most inspirational speakers for a while. I'm gonna have to go on YouTube and catch some of his stuff. Uh, I'm definitely gonna tap in. That's an that's a major hack, man. Like just leveraging YouTube, connecting with all these people who are super super successful. That's all I do most of the day. Like if I'm not listening to a podcast or um, listening to an audio book or something like that, I'm usually on YouTube, either watching some on construction, watching motivational speeches. Like that's a hack for sure. But cool. Yeah, I heard we got a we got a special guest. Special guest in the building. Special guest in the building. So let's go ahead and let's go ahead and introduce our guest for the evening. So we have our brother Quincy. Quincy is a real estate investor, entrepreneur, and real estate mentor. Over the last few years, Quincy has acquired nine properties, three of which are Airbnbs in the mountains of Pennsylvania. Quincy is also a specialist when it comes to taking over property using the elite subject to strategy. This strategy allows him to buy homes without qualifying for a mortgage. Other than his Airbnbs, Quincy uses owner financing as the preferred method of holding his property. These strategies have helped Quincy build a real estate portfolio worth over $1.4 million. Let's go. Quincy, what's happening? How's it going, guys? How are you? Thank you for having me. Man, so I know I just kind of gave you, you know, a super elite uh, introduction. So just wondering if you could just, you know, just gently reintroduce yourself uh, for our listeners. 
My name is Quincy Williams. I'm an investor out of South Jersey, born and raised in South Jersey, Willingboro, New Jersey, born, raised in Burlington, New Jersey. I just recently uh, relocated to the Poconos back in 2017 when I bought my first Airbnb. And ever since I bought my first Airbnb, I kind of been, me in Pennsylvania, just been tied to the hip. Okay. So walk us through that, right? So you, you, you traveled, you went to Pennsylvania, you got your first Airbnb. Um, where did the thought even come from to, you know, hey, I want to do Airbnb, right? Did you always have a thought, uh, you know, starting up a small business and, and being an entrepreneur? Um, where was this seed originally planted for you? So what originally happened was it all started back in 2014, actually, when my, uh, my wife now, she had uh, ordered a pair of shoes online. And after a few times of her, you know, ordering them and they were defective, after a few times of her ordering them and them coming back and stuff, she basically uh, learned to, she taught herself how to, how to create shoes on her own. And then she told me how to do it. And then we both began um, making custom shoes on eBay and Etsy. And then after we made a bunch of money on that, we were just like, yo, like this is something that we want to continue to do. We fell in love with the lifestyle of just creating our own money, living on our own terms. And one day her uh, grandmother had uh, sat us down and was talking to us. And she was concerned because at that point we were about three years, two, we about two years into um, making custom shoes and we had quit our jobs. We had dropped out of college. I was going to Rutgers. We were both going to Rutgers. And we dropped out of college. And when we quit our jobs, we started touring the world and stuff like that. And her grandma was just pretty much coming like, you know, I'm proud of you guys for, you know, starting your business and everything. But this shoe stuff isn't going to last forever. And she's just like, I'm concerned that, you know, one day when you guys can't sell your shoes anymore, you guys are going to have to start over. So we thought about it. And, you know, while we were going on vacations and stuff, we were always staying in Airbnbs and one day we had a um we had a we went on vacation to Maryland with all of our friends and we stayed at this place for two nights and I just remember seeing that you know we all paid it was like ten of us and we paid two thousand dollars to stay at this Airbnb for two nights now I mean we divided it up amongst each other so it was only a few hundred bucks but I thought about it and I was like yo like this seller just made two grand in two days and all mm -hmm. they're doing is letting us stay in their house so that's where the Airbnb thought or the seed was planted where we were like yo this is what I want to do so I stepped into a I ended up calling my stepfather first because I didn't know anybody. He was the only person that I knew who owned the property. So I wanted to see how to get a mortgage. So we started going into different um, institutions, Chase Bank and stuff like that. And then we ended up finding like a smaller, um, a smaller bank who sat down and was just talking to us about um, qualifying for a mortgage because it's a lot different. It's a lot more difficult to qualify for a mortgage when you have, when you, your income is strictly contingent upon shoe sales. So mm -hmm. that was what we ended up doing. And it took us a couple, it took us about a year and some change to eventually end up closing on our first property, but we closed on it just solely off of the income from our shoes. Mm, wow. That's a, that's a very, very interesting story. So what were some of the, I guess, complications you guys are running into uh, with some of these lending institutions with them not being able to, um, I guess, quantify the income that y'all was making from these shoes? What, what were they saying? What was that? What did that conversation look like? The biggest issue or hurdle that we had to get over were taxes because I mean we weren't we were employees up until all of this happened. We were never like we never tried to be like business owners. Like it kind of happened by accident. So like <clears throat> we were essentially just winging it, making all of this money, and then again her grandmom came over and was just like, "Y'all know y'all gotta pay taxes on this money." And like it never clicked to me. I'm just like you know like I'm in my I'm in my grandmom's bedroom making all these shoes and making all this money, and I never like when I make money taxes come out automatically. So I never mm -hmm. knew that like there was a responsibility. 
all of that money. So we went and got an accountant and um, we just wrote everything off at first. And I was just like, oh, okay, like this is how it works. Like, you know, you write everything off and then you don't have to pay taxes. We walked into the loan officer's office and she was like, you only made 20 grand. Like, how are you guys going to afford a mortgage? And you guys made 20 grand combined. And I was like, oh no, you know, you know, we just wrote everything off. Like we made more than that. We just, and <laughs> she was just like, no, you know, works you know you have to show that you make this on paper after your expenses so it was like oh, okay so she said come back next year also at that time we weren't in business a full two years or we didn't have a full two years worth of tax returns so she said next year you guys have to file tax returns and you got a net at least 80 grand so that's what we did we ended up pulling in over six figures the following year and we didn't really write much off. And we ended up, I think we owed almost like, it was like 30 grand or something like that to the IRS. And um, we qualified for the property, but like, you know, the, the taxes and stuff really, really hurt us. And that was also one of the reasons why we stopped making shoes because we get so many more, we get so many um, tax breaks and advantages and depreciation and perks and stuff like that in our real estate that we didn't get with those uh, custom shoes. That's crazy. Man, a lot of people don't realize, <laughs> like, man, this is the perfect example of why you can't listen to everything you see on social media because people tell you to write everything off. And then when you try to go get financing as a business owner, you gotta, you just gotta show that income. Like they not gonna let you acquire a property. Like if you don't have that income, it's crazy. Um, but even, even going into how much you actually are going to owe in taxes. Like if you actually want to be someone who leverages your nine to five or not your nine to five, but your business to get a property, like you're going to pay some taxes. Like, and it's not going to be cheap. It's not going to be cheap. That's why I always tell people who are trading or who maybe just started a side hustle. Like every, every deposit you get, every uh, direct deposit, whatever, make sure you put at least 20 to 25% aside, man. And you got to have a CPA or enrolled agent that's not just filing your taxes, but are actually tax planning with you throughout the year and giving you tax projections. So you know exactly how much or, you know, um, you have a very, very accurate projection of what you're going to owe at the end of the year. And then you can just plan for it. But if you don't, you're going to be hit with a hefty bill and it's, it's, it's going to hurt. Like I'm looking at 35 plus. Uh, going into next year and I'm gonna get it down a little bit but I'm also trying to qualify for a loan under the business so it, it's gonna be interesting to see next year you know it's um it's crazy because like we got a water hose of education just by going through all of this because like this wasn't something that we learned in school it's not something that somebody tells you it's just something that you just realized I didn't know that um I didn't know about FICA taxes and mm. it, basically the self-employment I didn't know that that's like 15%. So like you pull in a hundred grand, 15 grand is just your FICA tax because you're the employee and the employer. Whereas yeah. if you are employed, you pay half and then your, your uh, employer pays half. So like mm -hmm. when I realized that we were already six figures in, so it's like, damn, like that's 15,000. And then let's talk about income tax. So that was something that just, I mean, it, it hurt. Nah, it hurt, but hell, you know, that's it's just one of them hurdles we got to get through. Right. So right. You, you, it's better to be in that position to pay it than not pay it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's facts. I know I'm, I'm getting on the payment plan for sure. <laughs> I'm not dropping all that bread. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait until I sell this flip um yeah i'm gonna do a payment plan i'm not giving away that much capital at one time to the irs they can wait a little bit 
But that's crazy because they will charge you interest. They will definitely charge you interest. So Uncle Sam don't play with nobody, baby. Man. He don't play with nobody. But I thought what I really thought was interesting though was um how the side hustle did kind of like just you know blossom into something that did create a sense of freedom for you guys. I thought that was really really interesting, and I was wondering, you know, did it did it originally start out as you know we just going to create some shoes for you know folks in the area that we know, friends and family, and then shit, it just kind of just started to you know spread like wildfire out of that, or did you guys kind of have a specific strategy that you guys used to you know really grow um, shoe biz in this infant stage that it was that eventually allowed you guys to you know qualify to get that first. So it was definitely by mistake. I mean, I'm not by mistake. It wasn't, we didn't really have real expectations for it. And like, I'll never forget walking into Michael's for the first day. And I was just like, you know, I was trying to play college football. You know what I mean? There's no reason why I should be in an arts and crafts store. So like I was in Michael's and I'm walking around and I'm just like, man, I'm buying glue, freight check scissors and fabric. And I just, it just felt like, it felt like I was doing this for no reason. But I'm like, you know what? My wife says she knows how to do it. I'm going to just buy the shoes. We put the shoe up. I remember I made the shoe. It was finished. And I just took a couple pictures, put it on eBay. And then like two weeks, I made $100. And I was just like, okay. Like, all right. Like, you know, I made $100. No problem. And then, you know, I did it again. A week. I got another order. And then when Christmas time rolled around, then more and more orders started coming in. And like, it came to a point where like, I was delivering pizza. So like, I was like calling out of work or having people come take my shift over and over because like, I'm like, yo, like every shoe take an hour, I got like 15 orders. Like I can't be out delivering pizza, making $7 an hour when I can make $100 a shoe every hour. So it, it, as it gradually started to kick up, and then when we went inside the um, the loan officer's office and told her like, yo, like, you know, when she said that we got to make more money, we ended up beefing up our inventory. So like I only we we were making money, a lot of money off of just two designs when we upgraded to like 56 different prints. And then we went on Etsy, eBay, Poshmark, Big Cartel, all of those different websites. Everything just blew the hell up. And we were mm. and we ended up quitting. And I mean, it was fun because we were making a lot of money, but. At the same time, we also felt like slaves. That's the other reason why I got out of the business because we were up like 18, 19 hour shifts and like our bank Damn. accounts were hefty, but like we had no freedom to do anything. So yeah, it, it definitely started off as like an idea. And then the more and more it started kicking up, the more I kind of like, kind of like a light bulb kind of went off like, yo, like, you know, this is possible. And once you start realizing that you can create your own money, like a lot of things change. Like, you know what I mean? Like my boss can't yell at me the way he used to yell at me. You know what I mean? Like a lot of things, like my, it felt like my price went up. <laughs> oh yeah. Price did go up. It definitely <laughs> went up. <laughs> price did go up. All right. All right. So let's, let's dive more to, uh, you know, the, the interview questions. Um, can you, can you kind of take us through, you know, uh, you know, a quick journey, uh, you know, your adolescence to, you know, where you are now? Yeah. So, <clears throat> When I originally, I, I'm from Willingboro, New Jersey. I started, I grew up just playing football, just wasn't the smartest kid in school, always a class clown, always, um, you know, making people laugh. That's kind of just who I was. Anyone who grew up with me would, you know, attest to that. You know what I mean? I didn't start really taking stuff serious until college. Or I'd probably say like after, actually, no, I, I would say college. So that's where the whole transition from football, once I realized that like I'm not playing football anymore, then college was out the window too, because I only went to college to play football. You know what I mean? And once that was out of the way, and then I started realizing how much money I was able to make with shoes, what I was making with shoes was more than what any of those college degrees, or at least in my major, was paying at the time. And that's facts. That's facts. 
And then later, you know, now we got Quincy in, in 2020. Um, he got nine properties. Can you can you kind of walk us through, you know, what has allowed you guys to scale uh, your real estate portfolio as vastly as you did? It, I mean, everything. What I what I realized is everything happens like in order. You know what I mean? I never saw myself doing this this fast. It all happened in in a specific order. So. Once we got the first property, you know, we were making money on Airbnb. Everything was great. And it was like, you know what? I want to try to see if I can do something else. And I didn't know how to, I didn't have the the best credit after I got my first property. We got, we had perfect credit when we got the property. And then our credit tanked when we started doing renovations, maxing our cards out, spending money for the Airbnb. So I was like, damn, I want to get another property. I'm making all of this money with Airbnb. Like, how can I qualify for mortgages? Or, you know, I was looking up bad credit loans or bad mortgage loans and bad credit mortgage loans and stuff like that. And then I came across subject to investing where it was like, you know, you could um, take over somebody's mortgage and not have to qualify for a property. And that really interested me because I had bad credit. So because I was doing shoes, when I'm doing shoes and I'm sitting down for an hour, if I'm doing five shoes, I know I'm sitting down for five hours. So I would just, you know, put my earphones on and I would just be talking. I mean, I would be just listening to all of the different subject to investors talk about what they did, how they did it. And I watched almost about every, at the time, every single video on YouTube when it had to come to subject two, I watched it. So I knew exactly how to do it and I loved it. And then once I was educated on it, then I started reaching out to the, um, like my favorite YouTubers who were talking about subject two. And I reached out to a Chris Haskins and I bought one of his courses. I got him on the phone. I um, bought his contracts. I started doing everything. And then I went in and did my first subject two deal. I learned about subject two in the beginning of November and I closed in December. The very next month, I closed on my first subject two deal. And when I did that, my eyes opened up again. It was like, wow, like if I can just like, if I did this in one month, like how many times could I realistically do this? And I mean, at the time it was only like $5,000 that I had to pay, which actually the Airbnbs, the income from the Airbnbs paid that. But I was like, yo, like, how can I scale this out to where I don't have to come out of pocket? And that's when I just started doing more and more research. And the more I was doing research and the more I was figuring out how to do this business, the easier it got. And then, I mean, like, it was weird at first because, like, I was never a cold, like, I, I was never good at cold calling. You know what I mean? And I realized that the more you do it, the better you are. Like, I was shaking, nervous, stuttering. And all that other stuff. But once you once you get to like that that two hundredth call, your swag changed a little bit. I mean, I got more a little more bass in my voice. I got a lot more confidence in me. And then now it's just it's just regular. And that's when I started seeing a lot more success because I started to feel a lot more confident. I started to be able to talk to people and and kind of just build a rapport with people. And that's where my success pretty much started to make itself um, dominant. That's man, that's that's a um, yeah, that's that's a hell of a story. And I think oftentimes, man, if we just focus on if we just focus on getting one percent better every day, right? If we can get one percent better every day, and at the end of the year, you know, we up three hundred percent, right? If we focus on getting one percent better every day, and it's it's it's, it's it seems like you kind of took the same approach where it was like, yo, you had to make up in value what you didn't have in skill, right? Mm-hmm. So after calling so many people. After so many times, you know, now it's like second nature. So by the time you call, you ain't even got the script no more. You just flow right off the top of your head. It is so authentic. It's so genuine. And the other person on the other end of the call can receive that. And that's why, and, and I'm pretty sure that is having a huge effect in your ability to be able to close deals as fast as you are now. 
Can you take a second and really, you know, tell our listeners, how do you successfully structure a subject to deal? So there's a... <laughs> There's a few ways to do it. So, you know, I'll go by the way that most people do it. And then I'll go by the way that I do it. The way I do it is a lot more advanced. So I'll recommend people do it this way first. So what you have to do, how you have to structure these deals is you have to first find these buyers. You have to find people who are behind on their mortgage or in a hard time. There's a bunch of different ways to find them. You can find pre-foreclosure listings on Zillow. You can find, you can um, go on Craigslist and look at people whose houses have been on the market for so long. Uh, there's a way for you to go to the courthouse and um, like go go at, chase after like probates. A lot of people don't like that. They call people uh, hearse chasers. Like if you do stuff like that, like if you're like waiting for the person to die, just to come and take over the property. But that's also a way for you to generate leads. They have there's certain um, software that you could uh, go through, like list source, prop stream. And I forgot there was another one. But you have to find someone who is behind on their mortgage or who's in a financial situation, whether it's a divorce, a death, a lost spouse, whatever. Once you find that person, you have to. Well, first of all, I think the first thing you have to do is find an attorney that's going to be willing to do this because a lot of attorneys won't do this because they don't like it's not illegal. It's just unethical the way they see it. Like They look at it as you're going behind the lender's back because that's essentially what you're doing because you don't have or you don't have to tell the lender. There's no law that says you have to. But um, but yeah, you find an attorney that's willing to explain, explain exactly what you're trying to do. I'm trying to take over someone's mortgage. I'm trying to um, not qualify for the loan and um, just ask if that's something they're able to do. So now once you have that person, once you have someone who's willing to talk to you about the um, about you getting their property, you'll then go and say, OK, you'll, you'll schedule a closing. You'll do your due diligence. You'll speak to your attorney. Your attorney will have all the documents. There's a there's a little over like five or six contracts that you're going to need. You're going to need an agreement of sale. You're going to need an installment agreement that lays out how you're going to take over their payments. There's a CYS letter, which I call the CYA cover your ass letter that basically lets the seller know all of your intentions, that you'll be taking over the property, that you'll be making the payments, and that if in the event the lenders call the note due, that uh, you won't be forced to refinance or they can't come after you if you don't perform on that default. And then, um, yeah, once you have them sign all of that, then you just basically go to the closing. Oh, you also have to have them sign what's called a standard authorization to release information form. That's basically, that gives you the power, that and a limited power of attorney, that gives you the power to go in and get information on the seller's behalf. So that's going to help you out so that you don't get into a situation where there's like three or four different loans on the property, multiple encumbrances on the property and stuff like that. It's your way of doing due diligence, your due diligence, and you don't have to take the seller's word for it. So yeah, once you get all of that, then you can just basically, you know, set up a closing and go close, pay whatever it is that the person owes to the bank. If they say, oh yeah, I only owe 5,000, that CYA letter will, I'm sorry, that standard authorization letter will allow you to call the bank and say, how much do they owe exactly? Then you can say, okay, it is 5,000. You'll cut a check to the bank at the closing and then you'll you'll have your property. They'll deed you the property and then that's it. Now, if you want to get, you know, um, complicated, you can start closing these properties in a trust, which is what I do. And I do that because lenders, banks, they don't do title searches, but it's an extra layer of protection to it's anonymity. It's complete. I just don't want, I really don't want anyone to know what properties that I own. So what I do is I close these properties in a trust and I typically name the trust after the seller. So even if the lender did do a title search, it would say John Doe transferred title to the John Doe trust. They don't know that I am John. I am the owner of the John Doe trust. So that's, that's the extra step and the extra layer of protection that I do. 
And then um, also, if you start marketing your properties online, marketing the property that you have under contract online before you actually close, you can then use the end buyer's money to fund your front end deal. Hey, quick, quick, he's talking that shit. Talking that shit. Hey, That's crazy. Real quick. So when it comes to a trust, um, are there annual fees you know, associated with a trust? Um, how does one go about setting up a trust? Uh, for our listeners, it's like, ooh, okay, I, I, I like what he did there. So there's no, the only, your annual filing fees, taxes wise and stuff like that, I think you got to file a K2 or something like that for your um, taxes. But if they wanted to do a trust, they could just go to a, um, they can just go to a, any attorney or a real estate attorney will be able to draft one, or I can just, you know, sell you all of the contracts. That's what I do. I have all of the contracts now and I've had, I've spent at least almost four grand on all of my contracts and I've added to it with all of the different attorneys that I have. So they're really beefed up contracts. And um, yeah, that, that's basically what I do. I t- I've actually went to court. I was sued for a subject to, um, yeah, I took over a lady's property and she took me to court and I countersued her 130,000 and she filed bankruptcy. Oh, wow. <laughs> hey, you ain't messing around with those contracts, hey. <laughs> so what does what do the numbers look like on a subject to Airbnb deal? How does that look? Well, you asked two questions. Um an air a subject to is one deal and then an Airbnb is another deal. I don't subject to Airbnb. I oh, subject okay. to my owner finance. Got you. Okay. So how do the numbers look subject? I could do both. So the numbers on a subject to deal, on average, most people in my area are behind anywhere from five to ten thousand dollars. So if you want to find a subject to deal, if you have five to ten thousand dollars, then get under contract, pay the five to ten thousand dollars. You basically bought a house for ten thousand dollars and then you can find someone who's willing to put down twenty thousand dollars or you could i mean you could you could just rent it out standard like a standard lease or what i do is i find a, a, a an owner finance uh tenant buyer who's going to put down twenty thousand or thirty thousand dollars down to reimburse me for my money that i put in to buy the property and then i'll get maybe five six hundred bucks extra a month for 30 years so every owner finance deal i get is anywhere from five to up to a thousand the one that i just bought that's about a thousand dollars a month after expenses and because i'm the i'm a said because i'm owner financing it i'm not your landlord i'm your bank so there are no expenses that come with that property i see i see so you subject to owner finance mm, i see so what are some of the characteristics um that make up an ideal uh subject to for you are you looking for properties that you know need a little bit of cosmetic work are you the, are, are you someone who don't mind you know going in and you know, doing a, a full gut, you know, renovation or, you know, what is that ideal property when, when Quincy goes searching, you know, what is he looking for? I'm looking for the top areas. I'm looking for the best school systems. I'm looking for the neighborhoods that people want to live in because I'm asking you to, I'm asking you for a 30, 20 to $30,000 down payment and that you're going to want to stay here for 20 to 30 years. So I want to pick an area that everybody wants to be in so that it's easier, you know, God forbid, if these people end up defaulting, it's going to be easier for me to turn that property over and find somebody else because now I'm in a much better, I'm in a much better city. So it's easier to be able to find somebody else. So that's what I look for. I look for the school systems. I look for properties that don't really need much work other than like paint and carpet. Because, you know, when I was doing subject to, like, I don't do subject to anymore because I'm able to just buy these properties and then just do the owner finance that way. But when I was doing subject to, I didn't have money like that. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to go and do a full gut and do a full rehab because to me, it didn't make sense. Like my full guts and rehabs are 40 to 50 grand. 
grand and I'm not getting that back on an owner finance. So it would just be $20,000 loss until I get it back on a um, monthly cash flow, which doesn't make sense to me. I like to be at zero day one. So I wouldn't do any guts. I would just do paint and carpet. But those are those are what are ideal to me. The best school systems and the properties that don't have the um, properties that are um, paint and carpet. Hmm, I see. Man, you sound like you got your hands full over there, my brother. A little bit. So, all right. How, for those who don't really understand um, owner financing, you know, at least with the option to purchase or sell the carryback mortgages, um, can you explain how powerful is owner financing? For those that still kind of questioning, like, like owner financing, okay, I hear them, but, you know, why should I do this? Why is this a strategy that I should, you know, um, deploy and equip myself with? Well, a few things. I think people need to first understand the difference between rent to own and owner financing. Owner financing is a, I'm sorry, rent to own is a form of owner financing, but owner financing is not rent to own. So rent to own, which is the most common phrase that people... I lost lost you on audio. Yeah, we lost you. Out. If you don't buy me out, I can keep your down payment and then that's it. That's rent to own. Owner finance... Hmm? Can you can you can you start from the top for some reason the audio going in? Yeah, the audio has went out. Okay, what I was saying was, rent to own. Rent to own is basically if you wanted to buy my house from me. I would say, okay, I want you to rent from me for, let's say, two to three years. After those two to three years, you have to go out and get a mortgage and your mortgage company would pay me off and then you would own the property and then you would just start paying back your mortgage company. Owner financing, I am your mortgage company. You don't have to, you'll be renting from me or you'll be, I'm essentially selling you the property and you're signing a 30 year contract with me. So you don't have to go and get a mortgage. You're just going to go ahead and make payments to me. Now, what make, why someone should use this strategy other than let's say being a landlord is because there's less, there's a lot less risk that come with it because you don't have to, anything that has to do with running toilets, if uh, if something breaks, something needs repairs, vacancy maintenance, anything that does not fall on you when you do owner financing, but it does fall on you if you're a landlord. The other thing is I've noticed, because I've, I've been a landlord several times. I had a commercial building where I had three tenants. Things break often. People do stuff. I had a tenant, they put rice down the sink it ended up clogging up all of the pipes. I ended up having leaks in my uh, commercial space. I had to pay that. But with owner financing, none of that is my problem. And I've noticed that with owner financing, I get much higher quality tenants. I have a property in Virginia that I bought about back in May. I have I don't get calls. I don't get any calls from them. They make their payments on time. They're a lot more responsible and they're just less problems. So it would make, I don't, if you did a, a pros and cons list on owner financing versus um, being a standard landlord, owner financing would have a whole lot more pros and not many cons. I still don't see any cons because here's the other thing. If I get $30,000 off of every single property that I own or finance, if let's just say it was five properties, I get $30,000 each property. If five of those properties defaulted, I can get all five of them out. I can get another $30,000 on each property. You can't get that with a standard lease. A standard lease, you're going to have the hope that that security deposit will hold you over until you can turn that property over. That's right. Damn, this is crazy because what I'm thinking, um, it really just sounds to me like you're able to get in a decent neighborhood for a much lower cost of entry. And then on top of that, you have no landlord responsibilities because um, you're, you're basically becoming a bank, right? 
So this is it's crazy because you're literally just becoming a bank and you're identifying exactly how banks make money off us when everybody has billions of mortgages. <laughs> it's crazy. But no, I think subject two, no, that's a, a super, super dope strategy. Definitely gonna have to employ that when I'm focused on buying rentals versus uh, flipping to get a lot of capital right now for sure. That's powerful. Also, you could network you could network with local wholesalers in your area and they can just bird dog for you. Just bird like they could basically get property. So like usually as a wholesaler, they're gonna want to see a spread. They're gonna want to see like, okay, if the owner owes 50 grand on the property and the house is worth a hundred then, or the house is worth 150, then maybe I can sell it for 65 to an investor and make money on the spread. But there are situations where there's no money in the deal. And most people would just be like, oh, there's no money in the deal and they'll let it go. Those are also excellent um, subject to deals. My first, my first property, I don't think there was no equity in that property. Like she owed more. I think she was actually underwater, but someone was able to give me the, I think that one was only like 20 or 25,000 down. And then I just make four or five. I think this one was only like 500 a month, but it didn't matter how much she owed because I'm just, it's just owner financing. I'm able to create how much money I want. My interest rates and my interest rates are anywhere from seven to 10%. And I tell them they can refinance it at any time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wow. Monopoly, baby. That's Monopoly. That's you could also sell those notes. That's I've never sold a note yet, but I have a lot of investors who call me because they love the way my deals are structured. And they're like, yo, like, well, like you got someone who, you know, like I'll get a property for a hundred. Here's the thing about owner financing. You can create your own money. I can tell you what I believe the house is worth. And if you sign for it, that's what it's worth. You can, if I, if the house was a hundred grand, but I told you that I think it's 2 million. If you sign a $2 million promissory note, it's a $2 million house. So that's beneficial to me because I upsell all of my properties because not because I'm trying to just take advantage, but because I have to account for future appreciation. If I'm holding this note for you for 30 years, if that property goes and appreciates, if I don't have that built into the mortgage, I lose that equity. So if the property is a hundred grand, I'll sell it to you for 175, even though it's only worth a hundred thousand dollars. And that's another way for me to get money because if they do refinance, I get paid again. So there's three profit centers. That's the other part about this. My first profit center is my down payment. My second profit center is my monthly payments, my monthly cash flow. And the third profit center is if you end up refinancing or if I have to kick you out and find somebody to replace you. That's also another profit center. So in your contract, are you also being competitive with what the market is currently offering for that style of a house? So hypothetically, let's say uh, you do find you know an individual that, you know, that want to do, you know, want to find the situation with you. Um, let's say the property, you know, is worth 150, but you say it's 200 grand. But then when the bank comes out and they do their actual appraisal, you know, how do you make sure or yeah, how do you make sure that you within that, that that parameter to make sure that your buyer is going to be able to qualify for the loan without taxing them too much? That's a good question. I don't. I don't. I just I mean, whatever what whatever they agree to pay is what I'm going to sell it to them for. So usually I'm I mean, when I go into these deals, I look at it as if I'm going to be your only bank. So if I'm buying this property for a hundred grand and it's only worth a hundred grand and I gave it to you for 185, I'm not expecting you to go and get an appraisal next year. You know what I mean? So I'm not, I'm in the business to make money. I'm not in the business to hope that 
you can go and refinance and that the property is going to appraise for what I sold it to you for. It shouldn't appraise at what I sold it to you for because that's where I have to make my money anyway. Gotcha, gotcha. All right. How, so how many subject twos? Yeah, I was gonna say how many subject twos um do you have currently? Four. Four. Okay. Yeah. So did so I might have missed this. Did you start doing airbnbs and then you switch the subject to um or you just been knocking them out both at the same time i think you started with airbnb right my first property was an airbnb and then my okay. second and third were um subject to my fourth was a commercial building my fifth was an airbnb was a subject to and then six and seven were airbnbs well i'm sorry six was subject to seven and eight were airbnbs and then nine was was a strict uh, owner finance i just bought it and then owner finance it that wasn't subject to so let's let's actually go ahead and, and talk about airbnb for a second um, for most Airbnbers, you know, everybody has to go to become, um, you know, an inspiration to become a super host. Everybody wants that super host, you know, status. Uh, question is, you know, uh, what were the steps you guys took um, to become a super host and how long did it take? We, well, before we got into Airbnb, my wife and I got jobs in hospitality because we didn't know anything about hospitality. Like, like I said before, I delivered pizza. She worked at Starbucks. We didn't know anything. And then we jumped in and did shoes. So we didn't know anything about hospitality. So I worked at the Great Wolf Lodge and she worked at Paradise Stream in the Poconos for, we worked there about a year so that we got just a water hose of information and value by how it works. What are the most common problems in hospitality? What are the most common solutions in hospitality? How how do how do how do my supervisors talk to guests? How do they speak to angry guests? How do they all of these things we figured out? And when I worked at security, I'm the face of the company. So I'm the one that knocks on your door if you're being too loud. So I, you know, I was able to get there was just so much free game, free education in these jobs. So we figured out how to do everything. And I, I tell the story every time because it's such an amazing story. But my my first week of working at the Great Wolf Lodge, I got um, I was called to a room because a lady had dirty socks in her uh, room. I went over to the pro I went over to her room, knocked on the door and she's flipping out. And for me, this was my first week. You know, what I mean, like I don't have my um, my trainer with me. So like I'm by myself. And, you know, when she when she said, like, hey, I had dirty socks and everything in my room. I said, I'm sorry you had to go through that. And I, that's all I said. I just looked at her and said, I'm sorry you had to go through that. And she flipped out on me, cussed me out, <laughs> say, I want to speak to the general manager. Who the hell do you think you are? How are you going to sit there and say, I'm sorry I had to go through that? So I was just, you know, I walked her back to my general manager's office and I just remember thinking to myself, like, damn, like, I fucked this up. Like, why would I say that? Like, you know what I mean? Things sound a lot better in your head, you know what I mean? And then when I said it, I'm like, damn, I regret it. I'm like, I'm going to get fired for this. So I walked into the office, told my manager, I was like, yo, Bill, I, I messed up, man. Like I said, this lady had socks in her office and I, this lady had socks in her room. And I told her, like, I'm sorry you had to go to that. I said, yo, I ain't mean no disrespect, but I, I, I am truly sorry that she had... But he was just like, he started laughing. And he was like, no, man. He said, don't worry about it, Quincy. I got this. He walks out there and he tells the lady, he's like, hey, um, what's what's the issue? She, she started screaming the same way she yelled at me and was just like, yo, like, um, there was socks and stuff in my room. And he just was like, what? There was socks and stuff in your room? He radios into the director of housekeeping. He said, bring me the director of housekeeping right now. The director of housekeeping walked in. He said, this lady spent X amount of dollars on this room and she got dirty socks in her room. Are you kidding me? I'm going to upgrade her to the best room that we have available. She's going to have a free, she's going to have late checkout and she's going to have dinner on us. This will never happen again. That is not why she came to the Great Wolf Lodge. And she just completely changed. And she was laughing and smiling and so happy and stuff like that. And like I said, like I, 
at that moment, when they walked away to go to the dinner that he gave her for free, I just remember thinking to myself, like, yo, that's why they pay him more than me. Because with me, you just get the sorry you had to go through. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Him, him, you get the whole shebang. And right then and there, I told myself like, yo, like that was beautiful. Like overcorrecting is what you have to do. Overcorrecting is essential. And I was just like, yo, like I took that piece of information, every issue that I had with my Airbnb, that's how I responded. I responded like, like I was appalled. Like he was more mad that like you would have thought it was a sock in his room, the way he started screaming. And I was just like, yo, like that's how I have to be. Like I have to make a pr- I have to take your problem away and make it my problem. So now you can't be mad anymore because I made it my problem. And it was like a psychological thing. And yeah. that's what I do with all of the issues. And when I have issues with my Airbnb. I'm ordering pizza. I'm blaming my housekeepers. I'm doing everything to make it my problem. And we ended up hitting super host status in 90 days. Mm. Talk to him. Talk to him. <laughs> Talk to him. <laughs> he said, hold on. He said, that's why, that's why he getting paid more than me. Man, look here, doc. Look here. It's so, so many lessons um, in this story. It's incredible, man. So let's, let's share, if you can, share, you know, one of your like crazy Airbnb stories or something that you kind of like went through like, and leave like this, this happened. <laughs> it's on my Instagram uh, under, I think it's Airbnb part two. Um, I had a college, I had, uh, uh, college guests. No, I'm sorry. I think these were high schoolers prom. That's what it was. I believe it was prom. These kids came over and let me first start off by saying 95% of Airbnbs in the Poconos don't rent to 18 year olds. Me and my wife were one of the very, very few that do. And there's a lot of money in that because we charge like underage fees. You can make it up whatever you want. But we can make an extra like $500 as just a fee that I tell them like, oh, you know, that goes to our insurance. But like we make more money when we rent to um, 18 year olds and we, you know, we give them this this lesson like where their parents like, listen, like we're giving you an opportunity. Don't fail us. You know what I mean? And we never had a problem. We probably rented to like 50, 18 year olds groups and we never had a problem until this one group came to our property and they all got drunk. They started, they were, um, I had holes in the wall. I had, I have videos of them throwing our outdoor furniture off of the deck, just throwing it. They messed up the garbage disposal. They had beer cans up in the chandeliers. They had, uh, they spilled beer all on the pool table. They broke the, I have like a a dual basketball uh, shooting court in the game room. The whole thing was folded as if somebody got like body slammed into it. And it just, I mean, it probably cost like a little over $300, honestly, with everything to fix. But I ended up charging them like $800 to uh, fix all of that. That was my worst Airbnb. Now, I've had similar, like, I've had, like, I've had situations where, like, I'm cool with my neighbors. Like, my neighbors, um, some of them, like, 85% of the homes in, in my neighborhood are all Airbnbs. But there are some that are um, residents, people who actually live there. So uh, what I did was I start, I'm, I'm cool with both of the neighbors. I went over there. I told them, listen, this is what I do. Before I even started Airbnb, this is what I'm going to do. This is my number. If you ever have any questions, if there's ever any issues, if people are too loud, let me know. I also shovel their driveway and cut their grass. So I don't have any concern. Like they don't call the cops for me. They don't do anything. But there was one day where uh, guests were just, um, they were lighting firecrackers at three o'clock in the morning. Like, and that's, that's on my, that's on my, um, my Instagram too. And the dude called me and said, listen, they were loud all night. First of all, they were loud all night, but you know, I'm, I'm not making, I don't want to, you know, bust your balls about it, but like now they're lighting firecrackers. 
hours, like right. two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning. So I had to call and be like, hey guys, listen, you know what I mean? Like, you can't do that. I've had uh, my grill set on fire twice. I've had my, I had this nice glass shower door that we, um, re- like I renovated this property real nice. I had a shower Someone got thrown through it. And I got pictures of that on oh. Instagram too. It's, it, I mean, the thing is, Airbnb is good at, at, at replacing stuff. Like anything that gets broken, I put a claim through Airbnb, they cut me a check. So it's never really a, a hassle. I always just recommend that if you're going to do an Airbnb, get everything that's personal out of that house. Don't have your, your late father's clock or couch that he, you know what I mean? Because it will get ruined. I've had my couches pissed on. I've had like, it, it, it get real nasty in this Airbnb game. So mm-hmm. make sure you take out anything that's personal, anything that has sentimental value. It can't be in that house. They'll, they'll violate you. Damn, that sounds like, a, you know, one of the movies that you watch and the kids just going crazy and they having like, you know, bachelorette party or some crazy ass shit. <laughs> uh, but, but man, interesting, interesting story, boss. Wow. Man, that's crazy. <laughs> but it, it uh, the lesson in that is that really with any business, man, it's always some cons, right? But the pros just have to outweigh them. And I'm sure the numbers for Airbnb definitely outweigh them, especially since you hedge your risk a little bit with the Airbnb insurance. Uh, so you can get probably a lot of that money back. And I'm sure in some cases, you probably profit off some of those things that happen too, if you're getting the work done for a little bit cheaper than whatever they pay you out for some of that damage. But yeah, it's definitely going to be pros and cons to every business. Just make sure the pros outweigh the cons. Absolutely. And I mean, Airbnb, it's hard to really come up on air. When it comes to like replacing stuff, like you can't, you can't say my, my two, my, my $50 table costs 500 because what will happen is Airbnb, when you go to submit a claim, they do their own due diligence and they have you upload receipts. They up links to the, like if they can find something for, if they can find that $50 table, that exact $50 table online for $50, you're getting the $50 table. It don't matter (laughs) if you found one for $200. Like they already know how this go. Cause I mean, I, I've been that person, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I've been that person that like would say, yo, like this broke, this broke, everything broke. And I would try to take advantage of stuff. And it, you, you'll have a better chance doing that. Like those, those kids, when they, since they were 18 years old, when I sent them a text message, I sent them the videos and everything. I was just like, listen, like all of you were going to jail. You know what I mean? <laughs> I was just like, it's 800 and is $850 and they paid that like the very next day. So like you're better off getting over on them than you would Airbnb. Right. And speaking right. of insurance, you can't regular insurance. You can't have regular insurance with Airbnb. I had um USAA as my homeowner's uh policy and um when I told them I'm doing Airbnb, they were like, oh, "Okay, well, your policy is going to end today <laughs> and you're going to have to just find some so I found a company called uh, Foremost Insurance, and they do Airbnb. And it was only like $175 a month, which I escrowed with my monthly uh, payments. So my mortgage went up $75. But Airbnb makes anywhere, if you're talking numbers, my Airbnb from when we first started was bringing in like $87,000. But now it's up to like one twenty, one thirty because of like COVID. Mm. So, okay. Um, brings us to another question. Uh, one that I, I'm actively, you know, which was curious for, um, for you. So what do you typically use to um, analyze your, you know, potential, you know, properties that could be a great a candidate for Airbnb? Because um, I know every market is different. And particularly in my market, um, I was going to do Airbnb upstairs. 
there's a guy who owns, um, he's a developer in, in Woodlawn of South South Chicago, and he has, he Airbnbs both of his units. Um, and last year, he netted like 40 grand. But this year, uh, with COVID and everything that's been going on, his, his numbers decline drastically. And I know it's different um, for every market. So I was just, you know, curious to know for you, sounds like you, you've had an actual spike um, in bookings uh, with Airbnb. But how do you evaluate, you know, if an area is going to be lucrative for you? Uh, what Airbnb do you use AirDNA? Uh, what is kind of the, you know, tactics and strategies you use to, you know, really evaluate, uh, should I do owner financing on this deal or should I Airbnb? That's a good question. What I do is I took about, before I bought my first Airbnb, I took about a week and just did full due diligence. And what that entailed was... I went on Airbnb and searched my city and I looked at all of the listings that are in my city and I was able to just sit and write down, okay, there's there's 150 houses in, in this town. There's only 20 houses in this town. There's 400 houses in this town. Okay, this, so, so since there's 400 houses in this town, this must be a very popular town. I would just circle that town. Then I would turn around and say, okay, where are the, where are the closest casinos? Where are the close, where are the amenities in proximity to this neighborhood? Do we have casinos? Do we have... Um, Water parks, do we have uh, white water rafting, ATVs, paintballing, golfing? Where where are all of these at in proximity to this neighborhood? And if I and what I would do is I would just circle that area and then I would look on Airbnb and I would go back and I would see how much these people are charging per night. I would see how I would, you could look at people's calendars on Airbnb. I want to see how booked they are. So that I did that for about a week and that's where I found, okay, I need to be in one of five towns. Got you. So let's say, you know, you and a wife, y'all going out for a trip. Um, what systems do you guys have in place that, you know, pretty much allow you guys to manage your Airbnb, um, you know, pretty much on autopilot? I have my housekeepers. So I have housekeepers who they started out as housekeepers and then they just transitioned into full blown property management because they're the ones that um, they, they clean the house up and they know the house better than I do because they're in it a lot more. So a lot of the issues, to be honest, a lot of issues can be solved remotely. You just have to have somebody in the area. Like there's a lot of issues come around with like, oh, there's not enough blankets or towels, which I also learned from Airbnb. I, this isn't an issue that I have. I just have also, I have um, friends who also do Airbnb and these, and they have these problems. I don't have these problems because that was one of the main issues we saw at the Great Wolf Lodge is towels, blankets, sheets, and covers and stuff like that. People are always asking for that. So I doubled up and tripled up on all of that. But um, that that having someone in the area that can drop off blankets, drop off towels, having um, because I was renovating the property, I got familiar with electricians, plumbers and just general contractors. So they knew when they were building this property, what this property was. And I already built rapport with them to where like if if a drain is clogged up, I can say, hey, Jim, I need you to go over to my property and, and fix that. And they'll go there and they're 24 seven. And they have I mean, they have like emergency fees and stuff like that. But I mean, it, it's worth it. But that was allowing me to basically put this property on autopilot because I was basically able to subcontract out all of my props. Mm, it is. It is. Having a solid team right. is so essential. That that leads us into our Nipsey quote of the day. So the late Nipsey Hustle, he said, I'm about seeing long-term, seeing a vision, understanding that nothing really happens overnight and just sticking to your script long enough to make something real happen. When I came across this, it, it spoke to me in 
so many ways, right? Oftentimes, you know, we really can't, you know, depending on where we are, we really don't know what that vision is for ourselves. So we really have to take, you know, a few steps back, or sometimes we might even have to really just sit down and figure out what is that vision, right? Our vision is essentially our roadmap in life. And if we don't have one, then we're not really, we're not going anywhere. So he said, I'm about seeing long-term, seeing a vision. So for our listeners out there, I will highly recommend you guys, especially as we go into a, a new year, goal set, right? Put a three-month plan together, put a six-month plan together, put a year plan, put a five-year plan, put a 10-year plan. And again, manifesting to where you want to be, right? If you want to, if you want to make a million dollars, act as if you already have the million dollars, right? So understanding that nothing really worthwhile happens overnight and just sticking to your script long enough to make it happen, right? So that's just staying 10 toes down, staying disciplined, staying consistent, practicing patience, right? That's what's going to give us or yield us the results that we're looking for, especially, you know, in our case of our brother Quincy, right? He started out with the, with the shoe biz, tried to go get, you know, a mortgage, got denied, right? But he was seeing long-term, he was able to sit back for a year, right? Double up, triple up, put the 19 hours in because he had a vision, right? And nothing really worthwhile happens overnight. Now look at him. Subject two, he got nine, nine properties, multiple Airbnbs. So he is definitely the epitome of sticking to the script long enough to make something real happen. Right. I think what's dope about this quote, man, it's really saying basically the opposite of what most people do, right? It's really saying focus on the process. Like focus on the process, fall in love with the process, man. Like don't get, don't fall in love with that dopamine rush you get from hitting that goal. Like focus on the process. Don't even worry about the reward. The reward is going to come. Like he said, if you stick to your script long enough to really make it happen. That's dope. No, I, I really miss this quote for sure. But let's you know, jump into, oh, go ahead, bro. It's funny because, you know, me, it was never, for me, it was never like, oh, I want to make X amount of dollars. I just wanted to, you know, help people. And I'm helping people with owner financing by becoming first time homeowners. I'm helping people who were foreclosing. Now I salvaged their credit. And I started realizing that like being wealthy is just the consequences of being effective. So you don't have to necessarily, you don't even really have to worry about trying to make X amount of dollars because if you're effective, you're going to become wealthy by default. Same thing. It's just like when it rains, you deal with mud. Mm-mm-mm. Man. <laughs> okay, man, talk. Cool. Let's jump into the, the wrap up questions, man. It's definitely been a pleasure having you on the show, man. Like so many gyms, so many gyms, subject to Airbnb, man. This is this has been a great episode. But first of our final questions, man, if you could give your 18 year old self three pieces of advice, what would it be? Well, for one, it would be put the football down. You know what I mean? That's the first one. The second one would be to um, don't sleep on yourself. You know, at 18 years old, I felt like my my sole calling in life was football. And you couldn't tell me anything. It was the only thing that I was good at. And when you tell yourself that kind of stuff, when stuff like that doesn't work out for you, it could really mess with your self-esteem and how you view yourself. And for me, I didn't make the team like I was on. I was, you know, I was going to college and, and taking all these courses and doubling up and tripling up so that I could be eligible to play football. And then I get the opportunity and then I don't. And it just, it crushed me. And I just felt like, yo, like, I'm not going to be nothing. Like, I'm, I'm not eligible. No more. I can't play football. I'm not good at anything. And, you know, it's just, it's crazy that I slept on myself like that because now 
um, in 2020, five years later, I'm one of the, you know, more effective young entrepreneurs up in this country. You know what I mean? So it's it's one of the things I definitely would have told myself is don't don't sleep on yourself. I mean, explore, you know, um, explore your, your, your skills, elevate, keep growing. And the last thing I probably would have told myself is keep going. I mean, trust the process. Don't don't whenever things get get tough, don't make don't don't think that it's the end all be all. Because in my experience, there's always more. There's always room for improvement. And like I told you guys earlier, like everything happened in steps for me. You know what I mean? It didn't come. It wasn't overnight. And I'm glad it didn't. And I'm glad it wasn't overnight because everything that happened to me, it, it, it felt like the stuff that I deal with now. I didn't have the capacity back in 2015. So like a lot of, it just, it felt like I just took a step forward and a few obstacles was thrown at me, knocking me off balance. And then once I mastered that and I can take another step, it's like, all right, more, more obstacles are thrown at me. And before you know it, you're going to be able to deal with a lot more. You know what I mean? Because you, you had that, that step, that step, uh, situation instead of, everything happening all at once. I couldn't have taken everything all at once if, if I, you know, was just an overnight success. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's dope. That's dope. Your risk tolerance, it really grows the more you get experience. Like, you're able to handle so many different things. And it probably happened for you at Airbnb too. I, I can imagine that when you first start getting, having issues with guests, like, it probably felt like it was the end of the world. Or it was like this major thing. And now it's probably just like, a nuisance maybe here and there uh it's probably not even a big deal at all it's like you send somebody over there they take care of it that's the end of it that's crazy how you just exactly. go with just the experience that you have the thing is like being when i took that me working at the great wolf lodge was just the ultimate hack because it my tolerance my uh i don't even know how to describe it but like when somebody says something to me my response was a lot better you know what i mean like it, everything was on point and it got to the point where I can call up a guest and they're screaming, oh, I'm upset, da, da, da. how can I be, man, listen, you know, calm down, what seems to be the issue? And everything is automatic because I was in that space. So stuff like that, being able to learn that, like had I not gone to the Great Wolf Lodge, we would not be super hosts. Mm, that's crazy. So the second question we got is, what is the biggest flex you made since elevating to where you are now? Flex? Flex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I know you had to do Here's something. A, let me think. Because some things, some things are like regular. You know what I mean? But the biggest flex thus far. Y'all gotta forgive me because I don't I don't I don't flex like that. It's no, that you had to splurge at some point. Tell you what, give me give me an example of a flex for you so I can understand what you mean by flex. <laughs> uh biggest flex for me is guys. This year, probably flying out my mom. Um, and my girlfriend in Vegas this is my mom's fiftieth anniversary pay for everything. Uh that was that was a that was a decent flex for me this year. But it could be something for yourself. Hey. So here's the thing about me. I'm very I don't f- <laughs> I don't flex prematurely. So I like because I'm not I'm not content where I am right now. So I'm not gonna do something or spend money somewhere because I don't have nothing to prove to anybody. So like it's 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 a little bit different for me. I'm not saying that it's not gonna happen. It's definitely gonna happen. I just say wait on it. 
but I don't I don't want to flex just yet. You know what I mean? Like I'm living right now. I'm living frugal. I don't I don't go clothes shopping. I don't go shoe shopping. I'm not doing nothing for Christmas. I don't do nothing for my birthday. All of my money goes right into my real estate. So I'm, I guess my biggest flex is just dropping all my money on real estate. You know what I mean? $40,000 renovations, $50,000 renovations and being able to employ, like I got contractors that work under me now. So, I mean, that's a flex in its own being able to have contractors. They old enough to be my dad. You feel me? And they're on payroll. So that's fire. I love that. (laughs) That's definitely a a flex for sure. So, so what's what's next for you? We got what sixteen days left in a year. What are you trying to accomplish in the last couple of weeks of the year? And then, what is your goals going into twenty twenty one? I'm trying to finish my properties to get them up on Airbnb at least one before the year is out. That's what I'm trying to do for the year because I wanted to. I only had on my vision board to buy three properties in 2020. I believe I bought five. So um, oh, there go your other flex. But um, <laughs> for 2021, I'm wanting to, what I'm trying to do is different in 2021 because I know. Did we lose the audio or is that me? Yeah, we lost audio again. I think he, he might be froze. Quincy, you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. All right, there we go. We'll be back now. We missed, I, the, we missed the 2021. We missed the 2021 vision. So what I said was, it's easy for me. I know I'm going to get another five properties in 2021. I said, I want to see if I can get somebody else five properties in 2021. Hey, 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 there it is. There it is. The law of reciprocity, right? The more you give to other individuals, the more you receive in your own individual life. Talk to them. Absolutely. Talk to them. That's what I've done this these past. Um, I was so grateful with all of the properties that I got that I got people who I mentor now. I had I helped a lady get a property owner finance to get thirty thousand for she got forty thousand dollars now she got her first property I got another girl that's under me now she bought two properties in two months and she's closed on another one on Friday so she's gonna have three properties in three months right. so I'm that's just trying right. to keep it up that's right. you got a course up your sleeve I'm thinking about here's the problem man like I'm I'm kind of like a little different like I'm I, I listen to a lot of motivational speakers. And I always believe that, like, you know, like, find out what everybody doing and don't do it. You know what I mean? And I always wanted to be something different. And for me, courses were never effective for me unless it's like a one on one kind of thing. So I'm trying to figure out I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm trying to figure out a way to have a course that's going to be effective. Something that's going to be because I don't want to take I don't want to. Tra- I know my value and I know I'm not going to give people value for free. It's going to be a lot of money. But I want it to work because I don't want I don't want you to pay me a grand or two grand or three grand and it not work for you. So right. I'm still trying to figure out a way. I don't know if it's gonna be a mentorship. I don't know if it's gonna be like, yo, like y'all gotta come out here for a week and we you know I, mean? I don't know what it's gonna be, but whatever it's gonna be, it's gonna be effective. Absolutely. I think uh, you know, as you as you begin to define what that what that's gonna look like for you, uh Brian is a is an excellent resource um for you to connect with um on the terms of you know trying to figure out how to package that up. Yeah, we could definitely we could definitely talk, bro. Uh I've been doing a couple of things. Like I so I have a couple of courses. Um I have a membership as well because I'm heavy in the car rental business as well as house hacking. So I teach those two, um, sell them in a bundle as well. And I got a private membership for the car rental group. But yeah, I think the most effective way, and we can talk offline about this as well, is really having that ongoing support. So you should probably just make it a membership uh, where you're doing weekly calls, bi-weekly calls, whatever, so have you. 
having homework for people to do, I think that's probably is going to be most effective rather than just making a course. Because everybody, they'll buy the course, they'll see a sale, get that instant gratification, buy it, and then you won't see any results because they never got through the whole course or they were doing it and something came up. It's like you need something that's happening every week or every two weeks to really, really grab people's attention in most cases. Right. And it's funny. It's funny you say that because you you basically see exactly what I see. I, I realize what I realize about people is they a lot of people get high off the I like to call it the high off the about like like I'm about <laughs> to, to to kick off out to do this like they're, they're so infatuated with it and it's like the best way I could like describe it the best analogy is like you ever see like track runners where they get on those blocks and they're like about to take off people live for just that they don't give a damn about running the race they don't give a damn about winning the race they just want to be on those blocks because it makes them feel like they're about to do something. I never understood that. Yeah, no, I see that. I see it Man. all the time. <laughs> I see that all the time. <laughs> he is broken down perfectly. Man. But man, this has been a great episode. Once again, thank you for coming on. Let the people know where they can find you. Uh, if you got a website, social media, whatever. Right now, I'm prominent. I'm more dominant on Instagram right now. I got a YouTube coming very soon. But you can find me on Instagram, Quincy D. Williams. D is in dog. Quincy D. Williams. Got you. That's what it is. Man, thank Quincy. Thank you again for coming on the show. Like I said, man, this episode was fire. I learned a lot. I'm over here taking notes. Got the Google Doc out. Hey, so I hope those who listen to this for real, make sure you take notes. Make sure to tap in with Quincy. Follow him on Instagram. Once it's YouTube releases, man, y'all better jump on that because that's going to be a lot of free game. And then the show, if you get a membership or whatever, definitely, definitely support, man. Super knowledgeable. Definitely knows what he's talking about. And if you want to be one of those five, ten people that he helped buy a bunch of properties next year, you better tap in. That's what it is. Well, you know what, man, like my brother said, man, you know, grateful to have you on the show. Uh, that's going to conclude another episode of the Double Up Podcast with Gene. I'm from the real estate guy. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at underscore, underscore, Mr. Marshall. We got a lot of good stuff coming for you guys, man. A lot of new content, um, a lot of new guests that's really killing it, crushing it. Um, so stay tuned. Make sure y'all hit the subscribe button and leave us a five-star rating. Yes, sir. Man, thank y'all for tapping in with us. It's B-Rob, a.k.a. The Infamous CPA. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at The Infamous CPA. And make sure to follow the Double Up podcast page as well. And click the link in our bio and check out offers from all of our affiliates. Definitely tap in with those, man. But that's what it is. Episode 27, we're wrapping up and we out.